Okay, my first day, when I went off to my first year in college, and I was laying in the dorm, laying in the bed that night, looking at the ceiling, thinking, man, I got four years of college in front of me. How much work is that going to be? How many tests? And how many? And that was 40 years ago now. And I was saying, man, before you know it, you're going to be a balding older man. But uh, I guess Brittany probably won't be that. But uh, it goes, it goes by quickly. I think I've told some of you before. You know you're getting old when your kids start saying, "Man, where'd the last year go?" And that was my son, who's 32. That was 10 years ago he said that. Heard the last year ago. Oh, my goodness. Um, okay. Um, an Illinois farmer was discovered kneeling at the head of a soldier's grave in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, someone was there asked him, is that your boy? And he replied, no. Uh, this young man lived in our town, and I have come to find his grave. And the observer said, perhaps you represent his father who could not come. Yes, my neighbor was glad to have me come, but I came for myself. You see, I have seven children, all of them small, and my wife is sickly. I was drafted. There was a, nobody to carry on the farm, and I could not hire a substitute. This was back in the Civil War, I guess, when you could hire someone else to go for you. My $13 a month would not feed the family. It seemed as though I must go, and they must suffer. When we were in our greatest trouble about it, just the morning that I was to report to camp, my neighbor's son came over to the house and offered to go to war for me. He said he had nobody depending on him and could go better than I. He went. He was wounded at Chickamauga, was brought to a Nashville hospital, and this is his grave. The farmer had come a long distance at heavy cost, to write upon the headboard of his soldier friend, died for me. I thought about um, that, you know, I thought about as we have been looking at the, um, well, the covenants, and we've been looking at the Abrahamic covenant and, and what it leads to and what we're, we'll finish on that today and talk about, you know, the, uh, basically the salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ that has come down and, and, uh, come down through that covenant, and uh, that is something that we should be thankful for today if we know the Lord. That, uh, the Lord uh, died for us, and it's something that I know I hear person after person here, man after man get up and say, I just can't, I can't understand how he could have done that for me, but I'm so grateful, and uh, we should have a, a heart of gratitude for our Lord who died for us. Um, I, I, we, one of the songs, I forget the title of it, one of the songs we sang here had a line that struck me, he makes the rebel a priest and a king. I thought, boy, that sums it up for me. You know, Scott, you mentioned that uh, looking back at your past before you knew the Lord, and we all do that, and I, rebel, a rebel is a good word, that's what I was. And so uh, we should have a heart of gratitude for our, our God and Savior who died for us. <laughs> Praise God. Uh, Let's, pr let's pray. Father, we're just so grateful today for what you've done for us, the, for, the, for sending your son, Jesus, who died for us. Something that we have a hard time fathoming, that someone would actually die for someone else. But, um, and uh, as the scripture says, Christ did it while we were still sinners, and while we were still rebels and still turning against him. He died for us. And so 
For that, we are so grateful, Father, and we just praise you. And now as we look at the Word, we just pray for your Holy Spirit to direct our, our reading, our understanding. I know I pray for it all the time, but we pray for knowledge, understanding, and wisdom in our study of the Word. You would fill us with that so that we might know it and might know you better. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, last week we uh, spoke of, well, we've been talking about the Abrahamic Covenant for a while. And last week we looked at a lot of the Old Testament verses sort of subsequent to Abraham's death. Uh, all of the verses that, well, not all of them, some of the verses that refer back to Abraham and to the covenant. And, uh, and we spoke about last, last week, we kind of saw a pattern. God chose Israel. Israel rejected God. But God, over and over, promises to keep his covenant with Israel and with men through Abraham in spite of Israel's disobedience, in spite of our disobedience, God still keeps his covenant. And I kept saying that that was important. Oh, uh, well, and we also talked about how God is still interested in Israel. Uh, God will be working through Israel. The, uh, the plan of salvation was worked through Abraham and through the nation of Israel that was, uh, that was come, descended down from Abraham and kept saying why that, uh, that, that wasn't important. Didn't say so much why it's important. I think um, it's ex extremely important because there's false teaching out there. And, um, and the people, well, I believe it's false teaching. The people who are covenant theologians who, who believe that Israel, that God is done with Israel because they were disobedient and he no longer, so they've lost out on their chance. And so now we as New Testament believers have replaced Israel. And so now God's plan is through us and not through Israel. You might say, well, they, I mean, there's still godly people who, are, who speak of salvation by grace, salvation through the Lord, so they've got that right. You know, why is it such a big deal? Um, and, and I'd say, in part, it's very important because as we've talked about, we as believers, as we study the Bible, we collect what we call our dogma. Dogma is not a bad word. Uh, sometimes it's used that way, and it can be. Uh, it can be bad sometimes. We collect a dogma, the collection of teachings of the truth of the Scripture that we know or believe to be true. And as we interpret Scripture, we interpret Scripture in relationship to our dogma. How does the, we come across a difficult Scripture, how does that fit within the dogma that we believe? And if you have an incorrect dogma, then you start doing incorrect Bible interpretation. Uh, in particular, and in cases like this where you, you would have a, a uh, well, if that teaching is incorrect, which I believe it is, then you, 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 you get a difficult, uh, excuse me, you get an incorrect view of the future. And you start interpreting prophecy in, in different ways. Um, that particular belief, the people who hold to that belief use, when it comes to interpreting scripture, there is a method of interpreting scripture. It's called the historical grammatical method. And basically all it means is we try as best we can to understand grammatically the truth of what, what the word means, understand its grammatical context and its historical context. And in those, uh, those are two of the key ways that we help try to interpret the truth of scripture. Those who believe covenant theology uh, hold to the historical grammatical method in all things except when you start talking about prophecy of end times, they can't because, uh, because of their beliefs. 
the, the prophecies, as you, if you read them in their straightforward manner, you can't interpret them the way that they seem to be interpreted straightforwardly if you don't believe that, it, that God still it has his hand on Israel and still is working through Israel. And so then they have to sort of switch to the allegorical interpretations of the Bible and say, well, this is all symbolic, and, and you sort of make up some of that. And so, anyway, I'm kind of going off on a tangent, but that's why I think it's extremely important that we have, a, obviously, a proper view of everything that the Scripture teaches, but we're fallible, and we, um, and we sometimes can't understand things that are in the Bible. But it's important that our dogma... It's important that our dogma, we should have a solid dogma of fundamental Bible teachings, but our dogma should never be so strong that we throw out the Bible instead of throwing out our dogma. There's sometimes when scriptures may challenge what's in our dogma, and our first thought should be, maybe I'm wrong, not the scripture. The scripture's not wrong. So anyway, kind of gone off a little bit on that, but that's, I kept saying it's important, and I, the reason why I believe it's very important. Um, and, and on that, I wanted to kind of go off as before as we complete what we want to do today is look at some old uh, key New Testament scriptures that that uh, tie in the Abrahamic covenant into the New Testament to show that it's not just an Old Testament thing. It's uh, the, the promise was made to Abraham and his descendants. The covenant was made with Abraham and his descendants, but that covenant is still in place, and it's it's still a very important covenant. And, and uh, before we do that, I want to take a, just a little side and talk just about, about one element of Bible interpretation. Uh, of course, as we read Scripture, Scripture needs to be understood. We need to know what did the author mean by what he wrote. And there are you know, numerous uh, principles for interpreting. Uh, uh, you know, I talked about historical, grammatical. Uh, context is key and understanding. There, there's many different types of writing of, of scripture. There's historical narrative, poetry, prophecy, proverbs, letters, different kinds of writing, and there's different principles for understanding how to interpret those. Okay, so fine. We need to know what it meant. But then uh, a key part also of, of Bible interpretation is application. Um, we need to know how is the scripture to be applied to us and how we live today. That is a, a real key part because we're not doing this just for knowledge. Uh, our, our, our belief in God and our understanding of scripture should be there to help us live our lives. And so application is key. And one of, the, one of the key parts of applying scripture correctly is that we need to determine properly to whom our the verses that we're dealing with addressed. Okay, the principle that is normally used in interpreting scripture is the following. All scripture should be received as normative. The word normative just means as applying as standard to all people in all nations at all time. So that's what the word normative means. All scripture should be received as normative for every person in all societies of all unless the Bible itself audience. That limitation may take place in the immediate context or in other parts of Scripture. For example, I'm going to read a Scripture to you. Um, From 25 years old and upward, they shall enter to perform service in the work of the tent of meeting. But at the age of 50 years, they shall retire from the service in the work and not work anymore. It'd be kind of nice if that was normative. You should start working when you're 25 and retire when you're 50. 
Uh, unfortunately, what I didn't read is right before it, and this is a real easy one. It says, now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is what applies to the Levites. Okay, so, you know, a simple and obvious one, but my point is, uh, again, the principle is every principle in the Bible should be considered normative for all people in all places, unless the Bible itself limits it and says this is not a, a normative teaching. So we are not Levites. I'm pretty safe to say that none of us here are Levites, and certainly none of us here are Levites under the Old Testament. So uh, that, that scripture obviously is not normative and doesn't apply to us. How about another one? Exodus 15, 26. And he said, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. Well, is the Lord our healer? Well, of course. Healing, any healing that comes, comes from the Lord. Um, this, this scripture happens right after Moses' song about God's deliverance at Red Sea. God takes them three days into the wilderness. They have no water for a while, and the first water that they come to is bitter, and they start complaining. Imagine that. And then so he shows Moses how to throw the, the stick in the water, and the water is made sweet, and then God makes a promise, this promise to them. And so the question is, this a normative statement teaching for all people at all times, in particular for us today, well, there's some people that believe that, and we'll point to this, that believe that you and I should never be sick, ever, and, and that we should always be healed. I, I believe this particular one, many believe that this is God speaking to the Israelites as they have come out of Egypt, and he's talking to them particularly. The context seems to be pretty clear to me, I, anyway, that he's talking specifically to them about the diseases that he put on the Egyptians and he was not going to put on them. So... Again, you'll have some people that will argue, and they'll and this would be one where if you find elsewhere in the Bible that, the, that God says that you should never be sick, but or if you, every time you get sick, he will always heal you on this earth, um, then if there were other scriptures that said that, then you could say, well, yes, that may apply to us. But again, the point is, is this a scripture, is this normative, do, do we, does this uh, apply to all people at all time? The answer is, well, yes, God is our healer for when, when he chooses to heal, but does this scripture say that God will heal us all the time on this earth? Well, I don't think so, but, and so that's another one where the context kind of limits the, uh, the discussion. Okay, here's another one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This section of scripture actually has a name. It's called the Shema. And uh, important scriptures to Israel. And it certainly says, Hear, O Israel, is this... Scripture normative to all people at all times? Well, yes. How do we know this? We don't even have to get into an argument on context here. Matthew 22, 36 to 40. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and the foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So Jesus points to the teaching that's in the Shema and makes it a normative principle for all people at all times in all societies. Okay, so my point is not everything that the scripture says applies to you and I, most of it, and we have to be very careful when we're interpreting. And the reason I brought that up is uh, we've been studying um, the Abrahamic covenant began in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, the promise. I, now the Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So to whom was God speaking when he made the promise? He was speaking to Abraham and his promise of descent. And he spoke this promise over again to uh, Isaac and to Jacob. And the nation of Israel was formed through Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And this promise was made to them. And so was this true for all men at all time? Well, it seems pretty clear when it says, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that's the part that we're pointing to. We're we're some of all the families of the earth here, so we can look at that and know that he's speaking to us. And then, but then the question comes, ah, but how will we, we be, <laughs> it's easy for you to say, how will we be blessed? And so the purpose today is to look at some New Testament scriptures that speak directly to, the, these, uh, to this promise and to know that God, the part of the promise that we are involved with is not the land. You and I aren't promised the promised land in Israel. Uh, we're not promised descendants as numerous as the sand of the seashore or the, star, or the stars in the sky. Those promises, that part of the promise in, in particular was to Abraham and his descendants. But the last part of the promise came to, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that was the part of the promise that we get in on. Praise God for that. Okay, so we're going to look at just a few verses in the New Testament that speak of the Abrahamic covenant. The first one is in Matthew chapter 3, uh, Matthew 3, 7. Um, just wanted to look at a couple of verses, Matthew 3, 7. But when he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. I wanted to bring up this verse uh, in specific because... John the Baptist is saying, and he's telling the people of Israel that just being sons of Abraham does not save one. Uh, that, that is the unfortunate belief that Israel fell into. That they were Israel. They were God's chosen people. So they were in, and you aren't, and I'm not. That was that what they believed, that the Gentiles were out. They were in just because. Um, Jesus illustrated this in a striking way in Matthew 8, 5 through 13, um, these verses talk about uh, Jesus healing the centurion's servant. And I won't, for the sake of time, I won't read all the verses 5 through 13, but he gets to 11, uh, excuse me, at the end of verse 10, truly I say to you, this is Matthew 8, 10, 
Truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus says here what John the Baptist was saying that expands it a little um, in saying, well, first of all, he marveled at the faith of the centurions, looking for faith like that among his people in Israel and not finding it. And his comments in verse 11 and 12 that I just read indicate that many Gentiles, when he says people will come from east and west, he's talking about Gentiles, will make it to heaven, he's saying, bottom line. While many Israelites, sons of the kingdom, will not. And again, Jesus is saying, being a son of the kingdom, being a chosen, one of the chosen people, did not guarantee people that they would be to heaven. And it sets up the, uh, the blessing of the uh, that coming through the covenant of Abraham. And we, as we have said many times, no one earns the right to go to heaven. Okay, now let's turn to Romans chapter 4. And we're going to look at uh, two passages that speak uh, directly to the Abrahamic covenant and to us. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 25. I'm not going to read all of these verses again for the sake of time. Great chapter. Uh, I recommend, we'll leave that as an exercise to the reader. I was a math major when I was in college. You always get to those places where the math book would work something out and you'd be wanting them to show you something, and then they would say, well, we'll leave this as an exercise for the reader. just means that the writer was too lazy to... Never mind. Never mind. In, in chapter 4, well, let's look back briefly to uh, Romans 3 and 4. In these chapters, Paul develops the theological idea that faith is the only means of justification. And by justification, that term means legal acquittal before God. In other words, we're standing before God, accused as sinners, and we're guilty. <laughs> we're guilty. We know we're guilty. And so be, you can still be legally acquitted of a crime even though you're guilty. O.J. Simpson, <laughs> he's guilty, 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 but he was acquitted, so we can be legally acquitted before God. So he develops the idea that just justification, our legal acquittal before God, is only by faith. And he does it, actually he does uh, in chapters 3 and 4, there's kind of a parallel. He makes the general statement in Romans 3, verses 27 to 31. It's just a general statement about justification being by faith. And then in Romans 4, he looks to Abraham as the example of, of a man who was justified by faith. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So he makes the general statement in chapter 3, Abraham is used the father of the nation, is used as the example of one who was justified by faith. Okay, he, he says... Boasting is excluded. That's mentioned in uh, those, those verses in, at the end of Romans 3. And then he says, Abraham cannot boast. Abraham had nothing to boast about. He said, one is justified by faith, not by works. And then in chapter 4, he says, Abraham was justified by faith and not by works. And then in chapter 3, he says, the circumcised and uncircumcised are united under one God through faith. And then 
In chapter 4, he talked about the circumcised and uncircumcised being united as children of Abraham by faith. Okay, so he's using Abraham as an example of the general statements that he's made about justification by faith in Romans chapter 3. But it's not just an example. Some key conclusions are drawn. Let's read. Okay, he refers to the statement in Genesis 15, 6. That's the statement where it said, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Let's read Romans 4, 10 through 16. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which, which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. Okay, is the promise ever nullified that God made? No, the promise is never nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is also is no violation. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all. Great verses. Great verses. These verses clearly show that New Testament believers True believers, New Testament believers, are children of Abraham and partakers of the promise. Chapter 12 of Genesis, verses 1 to 3, the promise, capital T, capital P, the promise. That promise is still in place, and New Testament believers, are we are part of the, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. As I said, we can't claim the promised land or the abundant seed part of the promise, but we can claim that the, the justified by faith part of the promise as being those who are uh, uh, blessed through Abraham. If, now, this is assuming that we are true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Okay, now let's turn over to Galatians chapter 3. Um, other key verses that talk about the same thing. These are perhaps the key verses in the New Testament that point to the promise and show the importance of the Abrahamic covenant. Galatians chapter 3, again, we're not going to read the whole chapter. You should read the whole chapter, but uh, we will read parts of it. Uh, verses 1 through 5, sort of an introductory question. Did you? Basically, the question is being asked, did you come to Christ by following the law or by faith in Christ? And we know the answer to that. Uh, it came by faith in Christ. Okay, let's read verses 6 through 14. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure, therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations shall be blessed in you. 
So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Okay, so Paul again points back to Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And remember when we talked about that, that verse, uh, the, the, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so I had to rely on someone else who knows Hebrew. I don't. But the, the tenses of the, 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 wor- the verbs and everything in that says that wasn't just a one-time, oh, Abraham got there and said, oh, I believe God now. It wasn't just a point-in-time chronology. It was an indication that Abraham's life showed that he believed and trusted in God, and so he lived that trust. You can, you can see that in the life of Abraham. Was he perfect? No. I mean, he made a few mistakes here and there, telling some lies and getting Sarah possibly in trouble uh, because he told some lies because he was afraid. So he wasn't a perfect man. But in general, when God told Abraham to do something, the next thing you read in Scripture is, so Abraham got up and did it. And that's uh, pretty much what you read about Abraham. Okay, in verse 7, it talks about those who are of faith, our faith in Christ, are sons of Abraham, repeating again what we read in Romans 4. Verse 8. I thought this was a really interesting verse. I've read this numerous times, but it sort of jumped out at me this time. Um, Verse 8 says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. So when you look back at the promise and that part of the promise where it says, All the nations shall be blessed in you, whatever the exact wording was in Genesis, um, the scripture says here that that's preaching the gospel. Abraham. Abraham didn't understand fully what all that meant. He didn't know about the Messiah at that time, but uh, the gospel was preached to Abraham and to us because we can look back and we can read that in the scripture because God has given us that. Um, So the Messiah would be coming through the family of Abraham, through Jacob's family, and salvation would come to all through Jesus. Verse 9, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, referred to in the gospel preached beforehand. Verse 10, those who try to be justified by the law, and this is a key point. If you you want to try to be justified by the law, God will allow you to try, but you will fail. Uh, Because if you want to be justified by the law, then you have to keep every single law. You're not allowed one mistake. No second chances at all. You have to keep them all. Uh, I believe James 2.10 says the same thing. And then verse 14, through Christ the blessing of Abraham came. So these are amazing verses. They show that we New Testament believers partake in the promise. Um, I said when we started looking at the promise in Genesis chapter 3 that arguably, I, I guess I hate when people say that. I suppose you could say arguably almost anything. But in this case, arguably, those could be almost some of the most important verses in the scripture because it really, that, that, that is a promise that God made 
And through Abraham and the nation of Israel, God's plan of salvation, which Ephesians tells us was in place before the foundation of the world, that, that plan was going to be worked out through the nation of Israel, but, but made available to all men and women, uh, even those of us who are Gentiles here. And so uh, we praise God for that. So the promise permeates all of Scripture from beginning to end. Um, key verses. Uh, verses 15 to 29 we won't read, but it talks about the purpose of the law. Verse 17, the giving of the law, kind of key here. The, the, he uses the example of humans who make a covenant. Um, he he talks, starts out in human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Well, in this day and age, I guess people don't keep contracts and covenants as much as they used to, but the way it's supposed to work is when you make a covenant promise, you keep it. Uh, you don't, conditions don't get added after the fact or any of that. And he points to that and says um, that the, the giving of the Mosaic covenant, the law, which we'll look at next time, start looking at as the next covenant, did not nullify the promise. Okay, it's a different covenant, and there's a lot of do this, do that, obey this, and, and it uh, shows us how, well, it showed Israel how they should live as people who were the chosen people of God, um, and how they should live in a relationship with that God. But that giving of the law, even though Israel would fail and fail miserably, and even though any of us fail and in trying to keep the law because no one can keep the law perfectly. Um, that did not nullify the promise. The promise is still there. And then we get to verse 29. that uh, says, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So we, if you know Christ today, we are heirs according to the promise. Praise God for that. I, was, I wanted to look at one more verse that speaks of Abraham in the New Testament, and that's in James chapter 2. Uh, again, very familiar verses, 14 through 26. That speaks about faith versus works. And again, I'm not going to read all these verses. You should read them, James, again, for the hundredth time or however many times you've read them, but they're still great verses. Uh, chapter 2. Verses 14 through 26, faith without works is dead. That would be a title that I would put on that if I was in the titles. Um, in particular, look at uh, James 2.21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? Um, Roman Catholicism points to this verse as support for their idea that salvation is through Christ, but you also have to earn your way too. It's, it's faith and works that work together, and you have, to do, uh, you have to do certain works in order to get salvation. I'm not sure how they figure out what works you have to do, but um, actually, side note, the Catholics believe that you need to do some work along with God's grace in order to make it to heaven. And in a sense, they're right, because John 6, 29, Jesus is asked the question, and what are the works that 
we should do, the works of the Father. And Jesus says, the works of the Father are to believe in him whom he has sent. So that isn't really a work, that's just belief, believe in Christ. So in a sense, they're right, although I'm not sure they look at it that way. Well, I'm sure that they don't look at it that way, so I should say, I guess. Um, okay, the, uh, so you can look at this and say, well, doesn't the scripture says, was not, was not Abraham our father justified by works? Um, I looked in Vine's expository dictionary of the, the Greek and I found a very, what I thought was a very clear and interesting uh, description of this that I think clarifies it. Vine said, justification is primarily and gratuitously, and the word gratuitously means given to one unearned, or without payment expected back. So justification is primarily and gratuitously by faith. But justification is subsequently and evidentially, meaning that justification is proven subsequently by works. And that, so he says here, in regard to justification by works, this so-called contradiction between James and Paul, um, and Paul has obviously previously said we're justified by faith only. This so-called contradiction between James and Apostle Paul is only apparent. That is, it's not a real contradiction, obviously. There is harmony in the different views of the subject. Paul has in mind Abraham's attitude toward God, his acceptance of God's word. This was a matter known only to God. The Romans epistle is occupied with the effect of this Godward attitude by Abraham not, Romans is not focused on Abraham's character or actions, but upon the contrast between faith and the lack of faith, namely unbelief. James, however, is occupied with the contrast between faith that is real and faith that is false, a faith barren and dead, which is not faith at all. So, as we've seen many times, I know I'm not uh, telling you anything you don't, haven't thought of before, there's, these are two different views of looking at the same topic. Uh, in Romans, when we're justified by faith, we're looking at the just, the, you know, the, our, our, our relationship with God. Salvation comes through faith. James is looking at how do we live out that faith once we have it. And in that sense, Abraham was justified by his works. By he, he, as I pointed out earlier, you look at Abraham's life, you can see that that man trusted God. This, this belief, um, um, was it Al? You said you don't you like to use the word believe because people don't understand it. I think that's right on. I mean, we tend to think, oh, believe just sort of means I have a superficial knowledge of something. And oh, yeah, that's true. But the kind of belief we're talking about in the scripture, that word means this is a belief that fundamentally changes how you live. It is a, a level of trust to say, I and I've used the example a billion times, but again, the guy walking across the tightrope over Niagara Falls, do you believe that you could get on his back and that he could safely make it across with you hanging on his back? Well, most people would say, yeah, I believe that. And then the next question is, okay, who wants to get on my back and go across the wire? <laughs> Not me, but... Although that's not, I mean, in, in the flesh, that's a stupid example. But my point is, if you really believe, in the sense that the word believe we use, is used in the scripture, if you really believe 
that he could safely bring you across that wire, you would have no problem climbing on his back and having him take you across the wire. That's the, that is the meaning of believe, that we have to believe the scripture, not just a superficial knowledge or belief. Okay, so we are at the point of concluding here on Abrahamic covenant, and I've probably again been accused of beating things to death before, but I wanted to make sure that we, uh, I think it's important, as I said, the promise starting in Genesis 12, 1 to 3 is throughout Scripture. It is the, the Scripture talks about that promise, that promise is in place. God has not given up on his people Israel. And as it said in the uh, Scripture in Romans, those who are of the circumcision, Jews, who believe in Christ, are saved. It said those who are uncircumcised, the Gentiles who believe, are saved. And so salvation that has been brought to all of us, Jew and Gentile, through the nation of Israel, uh, obviously through Christ who came from the uh, descendant of Jacob through Judah. Okay, so Abraham and his descendants were promised land, the promised land for Israel only, and seed for Abraham's descendants. Um, Genesis 22:17. there said, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of your enemies. That promise was to Abraham and his descendants. But then the last part of that, which the scripture refers to as the gospel preached beforehand, uh, the, all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham, and it is by faith. Uh, interesting thought, I, in Romans chapter 3, if you read them carefully at the end, you will note that your faith does not save you. God's righteousness is what saves us. We receive God's righteousness by faith. So you might say that's playing with words a little, but uh, this, this world is so... Um, you've heard it probably many times yourself. Have, just have faith. That's something that it's acceptable to say in the world. You can have faith. You can talk about having faith. Don't mention the name of Jesus or people will go berserk. But you can have faith. They just kind of have faith in something. I don't believe in something. And some people actually believe that. As long as you're, as, as you're very sincere about your faith in something, you're okay. Well, that's a bunch of baloney. Uh, faith is only only means something if what you have faith in is reliable, and we know that God is. Okay. Well, last week I um, last week I read this Methodist Covenant prayer. I was going to close today with the same prayer because this uh, again is talks about that subsequently and evidentially part of how to how we live out our faith, how we live out our justification. And this is something that I would urge us all, you know, not to pray necessarily these exact words, but uh, this was called a Methodist covenant prayer. And I think um, if this was the kind of attitude that we could all have, uh, coming to the point of, you know, again, I'm, a, I'm, I'm talking to believers here. I hope all of you are believers. If you're not, today is the day of salvation. You need to, give your, you need to have Christ. You need to accept him, believe him. Because as John 1.12 says, only those, uh, but as many as believed him, to them he gave the power to be the children of God, to those who believe in his name. So not, people will also tell you, oh, we're all children of God. Baloney. Only those that believe are children of God. 
So, the Methodist Covenant Prayer. I'm going to read this prayer and hopefully um, uh, motivate us all to have a heart um, realizing that, that if we believe in Christ, that that covenant promise that we have been blessed through Christ with that salvation, um, this prayer should be our prayer. Precious Lord, let me be your servant under your command. I will no longer be my own. I give myself up to your will in all things. Make of me what you will. Rank me with whom you will. I put myself fully in your hands. Put me to doing or put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full or let me be empty. Let me have all things or let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. Let this covenant which I make here on earth today be ratified in heaven in Christ's name, I pray.